morning. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Bob. Well, good morning to everyone again. Um, I think the the readings this morning about the supremacy of Jesus, as well as the offertory hymn, have already taken me to church. And uh, how about I just give a benediction and we head on out? You know, head on. To, we'll beat the Baptist to lunch, and we, you know, we'll get. <laughs> well, I spent time preparing this. Might as well say something. Uh, this is actually Pentecost Sunday in the Christian liturgical calendar, and if I had been better at preparing, I would have preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit or perhaps on the church, since that's often what's focused, what one focuses on, on Pentecost Sunday. This is the Sunday 50 days after Easter when we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. You can read about this in the book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, but if you want some good stuff on the Holy Spirit... Uh, Mike Horton has just published a new book on the Holy Spirit called Rediscovering the Holy Spirit. I recommend it to you. But in this series of sermons, uh, Bob asked us to uh, think about our one thing, as he described it. Uh, you know, that one thing that you feel like your life is really, your life and ministry is really built on, the thing that matters to you most, uh, and preach a sermon on that. So it's like, give your life sermon in 20 minutes or less. Uh, which I found to be a kind of hard thing to do, not because I have a whole lot of things, but I do have like five things, and so I say, how can I summarize all this into one? Well, I'll just come up with a topic in which I can insert all five things at some point along the way, you know. I want to talk about the Trinity, or the kingdom of God, or eschatology, or the doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, I wrote a dissertation on that. Um, Or I could talk about how for me, all of Christianity can be summarized as knowing, loving, and reflecting God. I think about those words a lot, knowing, loving, reflecting God in all of life. But I decided and landed on this, this topic, uh, knowing God by knowing Jesus and focusing on the person of Christ because I grew up in church. I learned as a little kid that the answer is always Jesus, right? So we are talking about Jesus this morning. And this is important because to be a Christian is not merely to have some vague sense of believing in God or just a desire to be good and to do right. Uh, Christianity is also not simply a spirituality for self-improvement. One might get all of that, but it's really about trusting in, giving one's allegiance and loyalty to Jesus, because we believe that in Jesus, God was at work reconciling the world to himself, and that he is our one thing. I'd like to begin by asking this question, you know, what is it that Christianity offers the world that no other religion or idea or philosophy or worldview offers? I could bring this meme up on to the screen. Uh, Maybe you've seen this on social media. Just have a look at that for a second. This is obviously meant to be a joke. It's uh, <laughs> not meant to be a stab in any other religion. But, you know, it's got representatives from different religious backgrounds with their typical funny hats. And you'll see the little underneath it, funny hat, no bacon, funny hat, no bacon, funny hat, no bacon. But Christianity, we have bacon. You know, you can eat the bacon here. So I have to say, you know, if there were nothing else that Christianity offered, this is what I would choose. Uh, 
because I like my bacon. But, you know, I don't want to offend our vegetarian friends, you know. They actually, okay, you can take that down. No, we don't need to keep looking at that. <clears throat> there really is something that we have to offer that no one else does. And the thing that we have, the best thing we have to offer, the good news that we, an- that we announce as Christians is the person of Jesus. We do not proclaim ourselves but Him as the good thing. Those passages that were read earlier, we had ones from uh, Philippians, Colossians, Hebrews, the Gospel of John. They all include very exalted statements about the person of Jesus. Things that were written within 30 or 40 years of his own lifetime. That is within living memory of people who knew him and experienced him. And they're already saying these radical things that you would never say about someone who existed in your living memory unless they were true. He's the image of the invisible God. The reason I want to talk about Jesus is, in some ways, because we want to talk about God. <clears throat> the God question is important for everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. That is to say, what you believe about God, that He exists or not, that He is like this or like that, affects everything about your life. Uh, believe it or not, it really shapes who you are. It shapes what we value as people, what we hope in, uh, what we live for, how we decide what's right and wrong where we think things come from, where we think things are going. But for Christians, the God question is related to the Jesus question because Christian faith hinges on the identity of Jesus. We ask questions in theology like, does God exist? And if so, what is God like? Is God personal? Is He knowable, good, wise, trustworthy? Is God for us or against us? These are important questions. And Christians find our answer by looking at the person and work of Jesus. We'll say more about that as we go, but I'd like to say up front that it is possible to know things about God apart from Jesus. In the hymn we sang earlier, How Great Thou Art, it begins by this, this first several verses are all more or less built on what we could call natural revelation or general revelation, things that we can discern about God by looking at the created world. And seeing its order and its beauty and majesty or things we can reason about God or maybe looking at our own personal conscience, we can come to right conclusions about God. Also, the Old Testament is true revelation of who God is, even if only partial. But it's only in the person and work of Jesus that we come to see God most clearly, such that for Christians, the rule is, if you want to know what God is like, You must look at Jesus. And any conception of God that is contrary to the person and work of Jesus would be sub-Christian at best, idolatrous at worst. Jesus is the human face of God and the ultimate accommodation. By By that I mean God accommodating himself, speaking to us as one of us so that we can know him as he is. I don't think that we know God very well, or as well, of course, without Jesus. We wouldn't know about God's radical love for us apart from Jesus, especially those of us who are Gentiles and who are outside the main narrative in the Old Testament. We would have no redemption without Jesus, no forgiveness of sins, no sense of eternal life, no promise of resurrection restoration or reconciliation with God 
In fact, uh, one of the ways you can talk about what Jesus, who Jesus is for us is to say that Jesus represents us, reconciles us, and renews us. So to think about what we would have without Christ, uh, Jesus represents us to God. If we didn't have him, we might have to represent ourselves. And that probably wouldn't go very well uh, for most of us. Jesus also reconciles us. So without him, we'd have no reconciliation. We would live in fear. And without Jesus, we would have no hope of being renewed from the inside out. The way God, Jesus does this is he renews the image of God within us, uh, removing the shame we might have from our fallenness so that we can be the people God wants us to be. No, see, we are not at church this morning to exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves. We're not at church this morning to celebrate uh, being good people or people with right opinions. In fact, if you get to know us, we're probably not very good, not that much better than anyone else, and we probably have lots of wrong opinions uh, in our collective group. But we're here to worship the one we say is good and righteous and wise. We're here to exalt Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, I love this verse, listen to it, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I think that, that's a, a banner verse for a church community, right? Uh, for a family, for an individual, for a ministry. What we are proclaiming, what we're talking about is not us. We're not saying, look at us, aren't we awesome? We're saying, look at Jesus. He is the good one. He's worth following. He's worth trusting in. He's worth believing and giving yourself to. All we are are your servants for his sake. Now, I can't obviously give a whole Christology in one sermon, that, that's a theology about Jesus. In fact, this week I spent four hours lecturing on Christology to a summer theology class. So I'm not going to try to do that. Well, yes, I am, but not really. Uh, just going to skip a lot of stuff. <clears throat> so I can't say everything, but we can say a couple things. And one of the things I do want to say is that for many people, Jesus helps us to believe, actually believe that God exists, that God is real. Jesus helps overcome our misconceptions about a God we might reject or be turned off from because he helps us to know him as he really is. Um, Jesus also helps, I mean, for many people, their testimony might be without Jesus, they wouldn't believe in God. And only because of Jesus do they. Uh, Sometimes in life, we might feel like giving up on faith, giving up on the church. Uh, giving up on trying uh, to obey God's commands. And it's in moments like that where we need to ask ourselves, I think, do I believe that that Jesus is trustworthy? If I look at the accounts of him in the Gospels, what he says and who he is, do I find him to be believable, that you can bank on what he says? And if he tells us that he is the uh, demonstration of God's love for us, God's desire to be merciful, to restore and reconcile us. We can trust that. Is he worth trusting and following? 
I, you know, for myself, I accept the logical arguments for God's existence. I think there is sufficient warrant for belief in God from a philosophical perspective. There's also enough historical warrant for belief in Jesus and Christianity. But when we are suffering, when we're going through some sort of hardship, or maybe experiencing crippling doubt, or you've had a bad experiences in church, because let's face it, I mean, some churches are just crazy, right? And uh, maybe all of us are crazy in some respects. We're just blind to our own craziness. So you know, maybe somebody can tell. Don't tell me. I'm not a pastor here. Tell one of the other pastors here. You know what, what's crazy about Seven Hills. Uh, we're all kind of crazy sometimes. When you're experiencing those doubts, you need for God to come close and be real. To not just be a philosophical argument in your head. We need for God to come from our heads into our hearts and draw near to us in our brokenness. And Jesus shows us that the great and powerful transcendent God also is the God who comes close to us, who is near, who is with us in Jesus Christ. Uh, One other uh, person who has this testimony is one of my favorite theologians, I've referred to him several times here before. It's a guy named Jürgen Moltmann, who has an interesting story because he actually found Christ, or Christ found him, as a prisoner of war in World War II, after having been conscripted into Hitler's army at 17, being clueless as to what the whole thing was about. He was captured by the British. And so he is suffering as a prisoner of war, but uh, for the POWs in Great Britain, church groups would come and visit the prisoners and try to offer mercy and kindness and help to them. And Jürgen Moltmann talks about being especially moved by the Scottish Presbyterians, how they came and prayed for him, extended kindness and forgiveness. And then the more he learned about what the Nazis were doing, he couldn't believe the people would be merciful to him. He represented the enemy. It was there in prison that he received a Bible, and he began to read Uh, in the Bible about Jesus. And he said, as he discovered Jesus, he said, there is a God I can believe in, I can trust, I can follow, who knows what it's like to be right here where I am, suffering. And I I wanted to show you a short clip of him talking about this. Uh, This is Miroslav Volf, who's a professor of theology at Yale, interviewing Jürgen Moltmann, who is still alive. He's a longtime professor at Tubigen, just sharing a brief testimony about who God is for him. Who is God for you? Jesus Christ is a human face of God. And uh, without Jesus Christ, I would not believe in God looking at the catastrophes of nature and the human catastrophes of history, I would not uh, come of the, uh, on the idea that a God exists and this God is love. This was unthinkable for me. As a but with Jesus Christ and his message and his suffering on the cross and his resurrection from the cross. Uh, My feeling that 
God is present in the midst of suffering is uh, a firm trust of my heart. So you're not speaking right now <coughs> simply as a theologian. You're speaking from personal experience of yeah. discovering or being discovered by God. Yeah. When you were, can you say more about this experience, well, which was which was experience of anxiety, uh, aftermath of terror, uh, a place where joy normally would not uh, find its uh, entrance. Well, when when I was sixteen, I was drafted to the German army in nineteen forty-three, and uh, experienced the destruction of my hometown, Hamburg. Uh, it's a in the midst of Hamburg, there was an anti-aircraft battery, and we uh, schoolboys <coughs> had to serve in this battery. And uh, where the operation called by the British was the Operation Gomorra, the destruction of the sinful city of Hamburg. And I was in the midst of it. And at that time, I cried out to God for the first time. Uh, and later, I uh, was in prison, uh, in a prison camp in Scotland. And uh, there I read with consciousness for the first <coughs> time the Gospel of Mark. And when I came to the uh, cry with uh, which Jesus died, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I felt that there is a divine brother who feels the same as my feeling was at that time. And uh, this uh, saved me from self-destruction mm -hmm. and uh, desperation. And so uh, I came up yeah. with hope. He says, and that saved me from self-destruction <coughs> and devastation. That in Jesus we see God as he really is. And for many of us, for all of us who believe, that's the lifesaver. The passage in Colossians that I wanted to <coughs> focus on has already been read this morning. You can bring it up on the screen. It's one of those passages that speaks of Jesus in an exalted way. And the whole point of Colossians really is to show that Jesus is supreme or superior to all other competing allegiances or truth claims, to all other powers or whatever. And this section, verse 15 through 20, is, it has kind of a poetic form to it um, that's showing, it's built around the word head, showing that Jesus is supreme and better and starts by saying, you know, he's the image of the invisible God. That's a, that's a phrase worth just thinking on some. Again, a crazy thing to say about someone who died 30 or 40 years ago. Like people walking around today saying, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan was actually divine. And everyone would say, uh, you're crazy, right? <laughs> you, you might have liked him as a president. You might have hated him. He wasn't the son of God. You know, you would never say that about somebody. You might say that about someone who, in the ancient world who was an emperor or king or someone who lived centuries before, 
so no one actually knew them. The image of God, a whole lot you could say about that, but in, in brief, it means that by looking at Jesus, we see God as the image of God. We also see what humanity is supposed to be, the image of God. It says in the passage that he's the agent of creation, as in the book of Proverbs, where wisdom is personified as the agent of creation. Colossians is saying that Jesus is the wisdom of God. If you want to know what God thinks is wise, you look at him. To say he's the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, obviously the first to resurrect to the new age, the new creation that God is bringing, um, is not a way of saying that Jesus was created, but a way of saying he has the rights and privileges of the heir, that is the one who is in charge, the one to whom we owe allegiance. The passage goes on to say, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And therefore, he's not just a mere human who taught nice things. He's completely trustworthy and sovereign. He is like the temple in the Old Testament, the place where God's spirit dwells. It now dwells there in him. And so if you want to meet God, if you want to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven and restored to experience God's presence and blessing, and you go to Jesus. That is what we proclaim. There is no true and lasting peace, joy, hope, or love apart from him. Jesus is our one thing. As it says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Him we proclaim. Very similar to the Second Corinthians passage, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. No, we are not our message. Jesus is our message. Again, we're saying to people, look at him, follow him, learn from him, join with his family, as messed up as we may be, the church. Join in his mission to the world. This is where true vocation, life, and flourishing is found. Because we believe that as we come to Jesus, there we find life. Life both before and after death. And so we proclaim Jesus is our one thing. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we want to, as the scripture says, set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and surrender ourselves to him afresh this morning. We also want to recommit ourselves to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. We pray that we might know him. By knowing him, know your fatherly love and care. And be filled with the Holy Spirit, his own empowering presence. We pray that as we draw near to your table this morning, we would be spiritually fed, provided for in every way. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So how do we know Jesus and continue to know him more? We come to know him through, as Jonathan was sharing and as Mohan was sharing his experience, we are confronted by him, by his spirit, and we receive him into our lives. And yet that's not the whole, because God continues to teach us about himself. We come to know him better by reading in his scriptures, and he sends his Holy Spirit to us, and his spirit 
together with the scriptures, guides us to understand him and to grow in him and to understand our relationship with him, not just a concept of God, but Jesus himself. And he also has given us some concrete things to remember him. He's given us this table. And the Apostle Paul was talking to the Corinthians about this, and he said that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body which is broken for you. And after the supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Now, clearly, that passage says that something is happening when we eat the bread and drink the cup. The church through the centuries has grappled to try to figure this out. But one thing we do know, that God, through his spirit, takes these elements, which are common elements, and he sets them aside to minister through his spirit to our souls. Now, as Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he made this this comment. He said, and this this is easily confused. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat the bread and drink then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Um, He actually says that if we eat or drink the cup in in a way which which is not discerning, we drink judgment on ourselves. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we have to have our act together? Does he mean that by examining ourselves and understanding these elements that we have to have confessed all of our sins and and really have everything put together? Sometimes in the church, that's actually what's been taught. But what Paul is actually saying here is to discern the body and the blood of Christ is to say, I recognize what Christ has done for me. By coming to this table, I recognize he died for me, that he has poured himself into me by his Holy Spirit. And that these, taking the body, which is the bread, and taking the cup, we remember him and we ask his spirit to continue to do a work within us. As we have received him spiritually, so we receive these elements and ask him to minister to our souls through them. That's why, as we take these elements, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you haven't recognize that and acknowledge that in in joining the body of Christ. These elements are not for you. Not that we're trying to, to, to tell you you're a bad person or anything like that, but what we want you to know is this is a family meal. And those who take the meal are broken sinners who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. And so if you're not a follower, I urge you, you, you you're welcome to come forward and to, to walk by the elements or, or sit in your seat as people come to take them. But, but don't take the elements if you're not a follower of Christ. But if you know Jesus, if he is your savior, if you've been forgiven, if you're a broken person who has received his forgiveness and you are right before God on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, then this table is for you. We have on this side two, two locations, one at the top of the exit, one down here. There's wine as well as bread at these places. On this side, we have two places. One has gluten-free uh, bread, 
crackers for those who need that or desire that. And there's also, this side is juice instead of, instead of wine. But whichever side you choose to go to, we invite you now, after my prayer, as you are led to go up to the table, <clears throat> to take the bread, to remember that this is Jesus' body for you, excuse me, <coughs> to take the cup and to recognize this is Jesus' blood for you. <coughs> excuse me. Let's pray together now and ask the Lord <coughs> to set aside these elements for, from a common use to a sacred use. <coughs> Lord Jesus Christ, <coughs> we pray that you would again renew us through these elements. Thank you for the confession of Dr. Moltmann. It's not theology. It's not book knowledge, but it's the reality of your Holy Spirit addressing us in Jesus Christ and showing us your life and bringing new life to us. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our commitment and our life in you through these elements now. Set them aside from a common to, a sa to the sacred purpose, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.